Content warning. This episode contains discussion of drug use, suicide, paedophilia, and unfortunately, something bad happens to a monkey. We also use strong language and adult humour throughout. It's intended for a mature audience. And welcome to Is It Art Though, the art history podcast that keeps your highbrow on fleek. I'm Augustina. And I'm Ellie. And together in this podcast, we're going to take you through some seminal works of art whilst spilling 100 years old tea on the way. <laughs> we're really big fans of ancient gossip in this <laughs> <Yeah>, Absolutely. <laughs> we will not consider any gossip unless it has been in the public domain for at least 100 years. <laughs> So don't submit any celebrity stories. We're not interested. <laughs> Living celebrities. So yeah, so I guess we should probably start with uh, talking about why on earth are we doing this? Well, um, I guess for a start, what the world really needs right now during this pandemic is yet another podcast. Absolutely. So we're happily stepping up to fill that void. I think, you know, art history is a passion for both of us and it's something that that we're really interested in and I think generally we've been locked in the house for a year <laughs> and over that time we've realized that it's pretty much all we talk about so it's true it's it is crazy especially when other people come into our house <laughs> I feel so sorry for the people who come into our house. We've gone really weird. We've gone really, really funny weird. in the mind tank. Like, I feel so sorry for one of our friends came round and we just sat him down and just bombarded him with, like, our thoughts on art and then just played him Doja Cat videos. Yeah, I think we played him WAP by no, Cardi B. Do you remember when what when WAP dropped and literally every person who entered our house was forced I forced them. I sat them down, every person. So gave, gave them our thesis on yeah, WAP so by two, Cardi B and Megan Stallion. Two people came round just hoping to watch Hamilton with us. <laughs> And before they were allowed to do that, before we could sit down and watch a lovely musical, I was like, sit down and listen to WAP. <laughs> and they were both just horrified. <laughs> and then I forced my boyfriend to listen to WAP. I actually started talking to him about it in the lift on the way up to our flat. And then I was like, by the way, when, when we get in, you're going to have to sit down and watch this video. So other than, you know, tying our friends up and forcing them to watch a uh, sexually aggressive rap videos <laughs> pretty much all else we've done this year is watch bbc4 i think now's the time we need to take a moment oh, we do need to take a moment a moment of respectful silence because bbc4 will not be commissioning any new content so in a, in essence bbc4 has died bbc4 has died r.i.p bbc4 and i think we're both reeling and shocked from this sad news yeah i think I mean, I don't think I'm wrong to say that BBC Four really should be given a state funeral. I think so too. I don't think there was enough coverage about the unexpected, untimely death of BBC Four. BBC Four was in its prime as far as I was concerned. 
So what kind of got you interested in the topic of art history? How did you become the sort of weirdo that, you know, (laughs) know, forces people to watch videos and and only ever really gets into BBC4 documentaries? Yeah, that's a very good question. So yeah, my mum is an artist and she's always loved art, always had just art books lying around in the house so ever since I was tiny I've always picked them up and flicked through them and there was one particular history of art book and it goes literally from cave paintings to present well present day this was the 90s like YBAs and uh everything in between and so and then the word I don't know if this ever happened to you (laughs) where you'd see all these paintings and then this was like pretentious six-year-old Augustina would be like I'm gonna do a drawing of a lady in robes (laughs) and in your head it looks like the stuff in the book and then you try drawing and you're like it turns out not only can I not draw faces or hands hands are the killer though aren't they yeah or can't draw anything can't definitely can't draw drapes why did I try to do ladies in robes and I was six off way more than I could do with my I had my um those WH Smith you know those like they came in these big tins blendable colouring pencils. Oh yeah. That's what it was. Oh yes. The, the NHS height of childhood. NHS WH Smith <laughs> The NHS, <laughs> NHS colouring pencils <laughs> <laughs> prescribed this kid won't shut up about art just prescribe her some colouring pencils <laughs> tell her to fuck off <laughs> anyway uh, that's how I got interested in art so <laughs> how did you get interested in art Ellie? I think it's kind of much the same story actually my mum's also an artist so I grew up in a house that kind of surrounded by art books and I think she had BBC4 on a lot as I was as a kid and you know, I was kind of soaking that all up. I was really interested in drawing and stuff like that when I was younger. Then I ended up going to art school myself. And yeah, I think like an amalgamation of all of those things just sort of turned art history into into kind of a passion of mine. And similarly, I'm now just insufferably pretentious. So like, <laughs> never ever go to an art gallery with me. Like, don't go to one of the big six famous cemeteries in London with me, because I will give you an unsolicited lecture. <laughs> you never ever want it. <laughs> I don't I don't know if I've ever been in an have I been, we've been to art galleries together before, have we? Yeah we have. We definitely have. So okay. we've gone to see some like avant-garde feminist like photography yes, and stuff. I yeah. remember that. Yeah, yeah. Have, okay. Also, have we been to Highgate Cemetery together? Yeah, but only the new bit, not the like new newer right. bit. Not, the, but we both have been saying we want to go to it. But you have to get tickets. You to have go to get to yeah, the you have bit. To get tickets to go um, to the old bit. Yeah, because I feel like normally what happens is if you're one of those people who launches into lectures at art galleries people sort of naturally start to follow you you become their like you become their leader without without really wanting this role i don't i feel like i'd have noticed that if i was with you which is why i was gonna say i don't i don't feel like i remember being in an art gallery i once went to an art gallery with our friend kate and i just i can't even remember what painting it is now but i basically just like launched into a lecture which was literally just word for word plagiarism of like an andrew 
through Bayham Dixon <laughs> the documentary I'd watched recently. <laughs> I could see Kate, you know, like when the when the lights switch off behind the eyes. <laughs> Just like I don't care. I'm like, and you can clearly see that the dub represents uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'm insufferable. I'm absolutely insufferable. <laughs> okay, I think we should tell the good people listening, all one of them, three of them, my mum, your mum, my dad on a different device, four, because I'm going to make Chris listen to it. So, okay, so all four people. What do we want to get out of this podcast? So I think for me... I think people have this idea that art history has to be this super dry, like, academic pursuit. And it, sh- it just doesn't have to be. Art history is bonkers. It's full of bonkers people doing bonkers things. Yeah. And it should be accessible. And I also think that people think that art history is kind of the reserve of public school kids. Yeah. And I, I just, I, I don't understand why and I don't think that's true. So I want to make art history accessible for everybody. The people's art history, if you will. I agree. That can be our alternate uh, tagline. <laughs> Al- alternating episodes. It'll be Hybra on Fleek and then other weeks it'll just be the People's Art History Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? What are you kind of hoping to get out of this? So I agree with you. I think that people definitely think that art history is a bit dry and fusty. And, and also I think that now is it's more important than ever to just spotlight the women of art history so it's it's true a lot of the art history that you read about is all like in the most kind of if you read the most popular versions of art history they tend to focus on big men doing big important things but actually if you dig a bit deeper there are loads of women doing things Mm -hmm. at the same time Mm -hmm. so actually i was gonna say it'll be art history it'll be art history art history for the people yeah no i completely agree and i think in many ways like women have been actively written out of art history and where they do appear they appear as like the muse or the lover or the whatever and you very very often do not have them be credited in their own rights for the contributions that they've made to to various art movements so yeah i'm i am completely on your side about that yeah how surprising (laughs) it's almost as if we live together and talk about this every day i also think i mean we should be completely honest and upfront here like the main aim of this podcast was that we were hoping that in 10 years time we'd be big shot podcasters who could get our own series on bbc4 (laughs) But that's obviously never going to happen. Our dreams are dead. Our dreams have been stolen from us. I'll be honest, we're not BBC Two material, are we? We're really not. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're definitely not going to make it, you know. So thank thank you very much, Director General. Yeah, turning our dreams into an archive channel. Your (laughs) mum's an archive channel. So, you are going to educate me on a portion of art history this week. Mm -hmm. Um, So, what is our topic this week, Augustina? Well, Ellie, you'll be shocked and surprised to hear, because I've never spoken to you about this before. (laughs) This week is going to be all about the 
pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. Yay! Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we both love the pre-Raphaelites. We've had many, many, many conversations about them. And we have also watched the terrible BBC drama adaptation, Desperate Romantics. Uh, that was research <laughs> for this episode. <laughs> Yeah, incredibly historically accurate. (laughs) If you haven't watched it, please watch it. It's it's all on YouTube. You can get it for free. It's it's brilliant. Aidan Turner plays Rosetti. Which is a massive catfish. I'm sorry. It's a huge catfish. The state of Ros I'm okay, so one of the things we might as well get out of the way now. I don't know. People looked weird in the old days. <laughs> yeah. But Rossetti looked especially weird. He had the craziest eyes. So he's like this, <laughs> this in, like it's super intense, crazy eye balding man. Under five head. <laughs> five, like this the biggest forehead you've ever seen. <laughs> and like for some reason. Well, yeah, in the BBC adaptation, he's played by the rather dreamy Aiden Turner, which is just the biggest catfish. Lies. <laughs> so the pre-raphaelite brotherhood was a group of artists and just sort of writers thinkers lasted a very short period of time actually from 1848 to 1853 but i think the style pre-raphaelite like it feels like a catch-all term for a lot of victorian art because they had such a huge influence on painters moving forward. So anytime you see a lady in a sort of a drapey dress with lots of long flowing hair and it looks a bit Arthurian, it's always like, oh, that's pre-Raphaelite. When actually, um, yeah, the, 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 the Brotherhood itself lasted a very, very short period. Yeah, that's actually, it is surprising to me, like how short the period of the Brotherhood was. And I think, yeah, I mean, you've already said it, you're bang on the money. It's the influence they had mm. and the phases that came after the actual Brotherhood makes you think that it was, it was just so much bigger than it actually was. Yeah, they really emphasised a focus back on nature and real life but through this lens of medievalism and a gothic obsession and very early renaissance art so they were kicking back against the influences of classical art neoclassicism and then also more late renaissance which is what was very popular at the time so actually that leads quite neatly into the main question that everybody always asks about the pre-raphaelites which is why are they called the pre-Raphaelites? What's Raphael got to do with it? Please tell me, What's why are they called the pre-Raphaelites? <laughs> well, it all starts with the Royal Academy of Art, which is still an art school today. Apparently it is the longest running art school in in Britain. And it was quite new at the time. And their president was uh, this artist called joshua reynolds who's a very famous portrait artist and joshua reynolds gave a series of lectures to the uh, students in the late 1700s like 1790s so this is about 40 50 years before the Mm pre-raphaelites but he had these very strict ideas about what constitutes good art and how aspiring artists should learn and his, his main idea is that you should learn from the masters 
the masters being the artists of the real high renaissance so Raphael and Michelangelo he talks about loads in his discourses like over and over again he's like you should learn from these people I can I ask a question yeah so by learning from them is that like basically copying their paintings reproducing their paintings um and and that's kind of how you learn to paint is that part of it yeah so it's quite like the reason that the pre-Raphaelite guys didn't like this was some of them were students at the royal academy at the time and they felt that this way of learning was very formulaic Mm -hmm. so yeah what you had to do and it all starts a bit earlier so like we were uh we found out about this from another documentary (laughs) we were watching on iplayer which was on bbc4 i'm not gonna let's go um (laughs) which was all about uh french art and it starts a few hundred yeah it starts about 100 years earlier with a guy called charles lebron who has these very strict ideas about what is high art, what is low art, the rules of art. And he makes it very formulaic, like right down to facial expressions. Mm-hmm. What is the, f- what, oh, yeah. the eyebrow those, bon- those absolutely bonkers drawings of eyebrows. Like- <laughs> <Yeah>. Surprised eyebrows. <laughs> Soulful eyebrows. Morning eyebrows. Um, angry eyebrows. Um, <laughs> like incredibly specific. <laughs> <laughs> angry that they've lost your tax return eyebrows <laughs> because he's quite good at it Charles Lebrun was like history paintings are the best form of art ever and still life is the worst yeah there was like four categories wasn't there yeah to, to... On, on, a, on a sort of scale of from the very pinnacle of what is great art down to so I think yeah still life is at the bottom and I think it's because and we'll get into this later, but this whole idea of painting what is literally in front of you, so painting from life, was seen as not particularly great at the time. Mm-hmm. And the idea of the artist was you learn about all of these different things. So you have this encyclopedic knowledge of famous biblical stories and Greek and Roman stories. You have a whole host of facial expressions in your head and then what you've got to do as a great artist is use your imagination to put all of this together Mm -hmm. which is what joshua reynolds skipping forward about 100 odd years is also saying so this was a way of doing things that had been going for a really long time and it was how to make commercially successful well-regarded art was you learn from the italian masters you you don't paint from life especially not at the beginning you're only allowed to paint from drawings and sculptures you learn everything there is to learn and you're only allowed to put your own personal take on it once you've learnt absolutely everything right and then you're using your imagination to basically piece all of these bits together like a jigsaw puzzle to recreate a really famous story so it is it is almost like a really um it's it's almost like a really souped up painting by numbers. Yeah, yeah. it's quite formula. It's quite formula, especially when you think if you're gonna go into because obviously the ones that are really popular are history paintings. That's mm-hmm. what everyone wanted to do. They're the great works, and so if everyone is painting the same stories, and they've all learnt the same things to paint these stories, then there's very little room for personal expression or and you see it a lot you see treatments of the same story over Mm -hmm. and over again by different artists but the pre-raphaelites did not want to do this at all and 
they they referred to Joshua Reynolds. He was Sir Joshua Reynolds. They referred to him as a sloshua. Because <laughs> they were trying to be all... Paw. Epic paw. sloshua. The thing I'm... When I did all of my research into the pre-Raphaelites, the thing I learned most was that they basically just made their own secret little club. Yeah. <laughs> to just kind of chat shit about people and they were like oh yeah we'll call him some slosh like, oh yeah we're gonna start a zine <laughs> like that was <laughs> um, and they had their secret name and everything it would be the pre-Raphaelites so so yeah so the reason they called themselves the pre-Raphaelites is because essentially Joshua Reynolds talks about art as though all great art starts from Raphael onwards so what they were saying was we're calling ourselves the pre-Raphaelites because what we're interested in is uh, medieval art, early renaissance art, we're interested in gothic, we want to go back to taking inspiration from periods of art that at the time were not considered particularly fashionable or, Mm -hmm. or constituted like great art yeah so for a really long time gothic was seen as just like kind of just dark ages stuff like you know a bit backward we've obviously come on leaps and bounds since we rediscovered classicism so did the um pre-raphaelites kind of usher in the age of the victorian gothic revival then were they i think they made it they pushed it into the mainstream right so if we look at the the period leading up to the formation of the Pre-Raphaelites in 1848. So 1848 was just a period of huge upheaval. That was the year of revolution. There were revolutions happening all over the place. <laughs> Never stopped. Yeah. <laughs> Round every corner. <laughs> <laughs> Everywhere you turned. <laughs> so, oh God. Another one. <laughs> so the art that was very fashionable leading up to that was this very neoclassical kind of, if you think about like the Regency period was the early 1800s, about 20 years before. So that was still the prevailing kind of style. And what you saw coming in, I think as a kickback to all of that, is a renewed interest in specifically Gothic architecture, I think is Mm -hmm. where it all started. So if you look at works like all of Pugin's, buildings so Mm -hmm. you you had big ben and you had the houses of parliament and all of these really big and that's a really interesting thing as well all these really big stately buildings that we take for granted now as just being victorian gothic a lot of them at the time were in a style that we'd not seen for ages but i i do think that augustus pugin led the gothic revival in architecture at the same time john ruskin a quite young john ruskin was writing a lot about the importance of gothic and specifically medieval art gothic architecture and nature Mm -hmm. so in a lot of ruskin's writing he talks about architecture as though it is a living thing yeah gothic architecture specifically so it's in the stones of venice and that was a that was like a 
seminal work for the pre-Raphaelites. They all read it. They were all inspired by it. They were all massive fanboys of Ruskin. And they desperately, desperately (laughs) wanted his approval. Desperately needed Daddy Ruskin's approval. Oh my God. (laughs) So much. But he talks about Gothic and it's really interesting the way he talks about it like it's a living thing. So he says, uh, the Gothic ornament stands out in prickly independence and frosty fortitude jutting into crockets and freezing into pinnacles here starting up into a monster there germinating into a blossom anon knitting itself into a branch alternately thorny bossy and bristly or writhed into every form of nervous entanglement so it's all it's almost like it's this tree or something that's growing so so i'm gonna make a, a confession I've, I've really never read john ruskin like it's oh man, I, I should <laughs> but but actually even just reading that quote i'm like i actually think i could probably quite enjoy this, this thing, like we're gonna get into the fact that ruskin is a bit problematic oh. uh, later on but i do think it's his writing was really seminal to the victorians kind of appreciation of art and looking at art in a different way and a renewed interest in gothic and a a renewed appreciation of Mm -hmm. gothic and nature as well Mm -hmm. so yeah so unfortunately ruskin's quite important despite being a bit a bit of a tricky guy (laughs) that is putting it super politely in a shall we say in a bit of a yew tree sense we'll get we'll get on to that later yeah later in the uh, in the episode so we'll start by going through what the brotherhood stood for because we've talked a lot about what they were against so they actually had a little manifesto and there were four declarations for them their art had to have genuine ideas to express to study nature attentively so as to know how to express them to sympathise with what is direct and serious and heartfelt in previous art, to the exclusion of what is conventional and self-parodying and learned by rote, and most indispensable of all, to produce thoroughly good pictures and statues. (laughs) Thoroughly good pictures and statues. (laughs) That is the most English ending to an artist manifesto ever written. I like the idea of them writing going, yeah, at the end. (laughs) Yeah, we really sucked it to the Royal Academy. (laughs) Um, so, so, um, So, yeah, but you can see straight away, nature is the second one. So having genuine ideas, which I think for them means coming up with something new and interesting and not going back to stock stories over and over again and painting from nature which express in this particular way like in other ways like in impressionism it's all about going out into nature and painting in the fresh air they did do a bit of that actually um particularly like millet did it when Mm. he painted there's a famous picture of john ruskin painted in scotland and he's kind of sort of not so casually standing on a on a on a rock next to a river and apparently a lot of that was actually painted in fresh yeah. air because he actually wanted to he wanted to study nature attentively so he actually went there and you'll see a lot in Millet's paintings that there's this incredible like you can see each leaf kind yeah. of thing like he will put in all this detail and a lot of these things were completely the opposite of what the academy was teaching at the time which was kind of controversial as well because two of them so John Everett Millet and 
William Holman Hunt were both students at the Royal Academy when they decided to start this secret society. And then... (laughs) (laughs) Secret club. Could you imagine being at school with them? You'd just be be like, oh God, these dweebs again. (laughs) (laughs) They've got matching rings and everything. Like, make them stop. (laughs) Hey, do you want to see some really cool medieval cartoons I found? (laughs) And then Rossetti wasn't actually a student at the Royal Academy, but I, I didn't really find out how they got to know him. I couldn't, I couldn't find anywhere how this dude turned up. I think I have. A, I'm not sure. If Rossetti's he's... a state of mind. Yeah. Rossetti is in all of us. He's one of those. Rossetti is forever. He's one of those people. You know, you have these like crazy friends, and you don't know how you met them. Yeah. You're like, I literally, I can't remember how you came into my life, but now you're you're always here. Yeah. And you've literally slept with all of my girlfriends. <laughs> yeah. So, in terms of the the like the broader themes of um, the pre-Raphaelites, they're a they're a mixed bunch because they definitely wanted to make a move away from from the more traditional classical themes as i mentioned but then they were still very spiritual and they still wanted to take on a lot of the biblical themes Mm. that some of their more conventional contemporaries would also paint and i think that's because they were they had various influences coming in so they have the gothic on one side um which i think is a revolt against the industrial revolution which was well underway by this point this explosion of cities and factories and more and more scientific discoveries being made so they were they were drawn to a return to nature and to a pre-industrial age which i think ties in with their take on christianity as well and their treatment of biblical stories so they were they you have this kind of Victorian moralism that I think they, they, it's weird. They kick back against certain things, but then in other ways they sort of don't. So they take stories that I think would still be quite widely accepted to a lot of people. So lots of pictures of Christ and stuff, their treatment of those stories is a whole other thing, which made people very upset. (laughs) They were like, we're going to paint Jesus, but you're not going to like it. (laughs) (laughs) It's Jesus, but ginger. (laughs) Yeah. Wait for it. (laughs) So they were, I I do think that some of them were like do-gooders. Holman Hunt was a do-gooder. He kept trying to improve his girlfriend. Oh God, yeah. He he met her and was like, I'm going to make you into a lady. Yeah, he was like, my fair ladied her. Yeah. (laughs) And it's this real interest in like, you know, painting the noble poor and painting people from humble backgrounds and fallen women and trying to show like real life as it is kind of thing but doing it from i think from this quite do-goodery christian perspective and they were very influenced by various kind of offshoots of christian movements so i think one of them that would probably is what influenced them to become a brotherhood was this German romantic movement called the Nazarenes. So, 
quite Christian. Um, <laughs> focusing on, they focused on spirituality, biblical subject matter. In 1809, six students at the Vienna Academy formed this artistic cooperative called the Brotherhood of St. Luke or Lukasbund, following a common name for medieval guilds of painters. So this brotherhood idea comes from a medieval idea already. And also, I think the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood probably influenced by these guys who did it about 40 years earlier. Right. At the same time, you have this movement in the Anglican church called Tractarianism, which is this break away from Church of England and moving back to Roman Catholic rituals and an interest in things that are much more high church. And I think... Catholics are good at a ritual. They're good at a ritual. And also, in terms of Catholicism in England, you're going back to medieval times. Yep. So I think it all ties together quite neatly Mm -hmm. in that all of their treatments of these subjects, it ties into this whole ideology that they've kind of mm-hmm. created of going back to the past going back to a a time in england where we did things a certain way and and then at the same time the the way they actually painted was very different as well so they were absolutely adamant they did not use something called bitumen which is a very dark black pigment which makes everything very muddy and mm-hmm. and kind of um, what's the word like quite murky. So if you look at a lot of Joshua Reynolds's <laughs> portraits, people look quite luminous and they're coming out of this completely black background, and they absolutely did not want to do that. Right. They were the opposite. They want they painted onto a white background using very very bright colours, mm-hmm. and when people saw that for the first time, they did not like it at all. <laughs> But interestingly, I think like a common theme that's going to come up over and over again <laughs> and in when this they podcast. Did that. <laughs> but also, just in this podcast in general, is like the weird shit people lost their minds over in olden times. It's like this person saw orange and it was never the same again. <laughs> so, um, it's so true. Like I say, all of these things tied together, and then. As another thing is when they weren't when they weren't doing biblical scenes, they were the only other thing they could paint was essentially the topics of that time. So they painted a lot of Arthurian legend. Mm-hmm. I saw when I was reading up a lot, I, I kept seeing the phrase like eroticized medievalism. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, tell me all about it. <laughs> But looking for new subjects to paint about, they painted scenes from Shakespeare a lot, from Keats and from Tennyson poems. Apparently in 1848, which is the year that they were founded, Rossetti and Holman Hunt got together and made a list of immortals. (laughs) For God's sake. Is what they called it. They're just so extra. They're so extra. They're like, we need a list and we need to give it a special name (laughs) and we need to do our special magazine. (laughs) So these immortals were artistic heroes who they admired from literature a lot, especially. So Keats, Tennyson, Shakespeare. And so now with that in mind, I want to go to our first painting, which... You can all follow along at home. It's going to be great fun. 
And I I was like, I have to get this painting into the... I, I can't talk about the Re-Ravelites and not have this painting in. So, yeah, we've uploaded all of the paintings onto the Instagram and we'll let you know the handle at the end of the show. So yeah. you can certainly um, have a look at all the paintings. I'll probably also upload them onto our Facebook page as yeah. well. So you can find all of the paintings for this episode on either of those And channels. we'll put links in the description. Yeah. So this first painting is by John Everett Millet. <laughs> I love this painting. I love this painting. I call it the leggings painting because <laughs> I saw a meme once that was like, when you buy a new pair of leggings and you love them, and it's this man. The bit, the first, okay, so the first thing you notice about this painting is there is a man sticking his leg out in these really tight tights, <laughs> like white tight tights. Um, so like they're so tight you can see all of the muscle definition yeah. of his entire leg and he's got his good little pointy toe little he's pointy clearly toe. been paying attention in ballet class he's yes. got his good pointy toes so when I was reading a description so this painting is called Isabella and it's by John Everett Millet and when I read a description of what's going on they were like oh yeah the thuggish brother is kicking over a chair I was like he's quite clearly just bought some tights and loves his new tights you've fully misread the whole point of this picture <laughs> everyone's got snazzy tights someone underneath the table someone's got bright orange tights oh yeah someone over there has got yellow tights oh i like his mustard tights. they've they're been really... on snag tights they, they have been on they've snag been tights snag that's exactly what i was thinking <laughs> and i bet they don't bunch and they don't roll up or anything <laughs> so but this painting there's a few things in here that are absolutely typically pre-raphaelite so we'll go through them and then as as we see more paintings throughout this episode you'll see these themes pop up again and again so the first thing you notice is the colors are incredibly bright you've got these really like jewel toned oranges bright white tights as i mentioned the tights are popping um <laughs> you got this guy at the front with this kind of coral robe on and the other thing you'll see is like the wallpaper and the fabrics and um the the background plants all have this incredible attention to detail everything is very very detailed so those are two big things straight away you see Millet is not using murky background colors it's very fresh like early Italian frescoes which is what they were inspired mm -hmm. by and it does it does remind you of that like real early Italian art yeah it really does and also apparently Millet messed with the perspective a little bit to I think to give it that slightly flattened fresco look mm -hmm. so those are some of the main things you see already. The subject matter is a medieval story. So it's taken from the Decameron, which was uh, written by Boccaccio, um, who was a like early Renaissance writer, I believe. And uh, it's the story of Lorenzo and Isabella, which was taken by Keats and turned into a long poem called Isabella or the Pot of Basil. So again, it, this is a story... <laughs> By one of their immortals who and they've gone back to this source material gone to the subject matter and the story is a about uh, isabella who is the daughter of a wealthy florentine merchant 
and Lorenzo, who is the slightly creepy looking dude in the coral, <laughs> the coral velvet rope, he's like, would you like an orange, Isabella? <laughs> <laughs> and for some reason she falls head over heels in love with him. <laughs> despite the fact that he's fucking creepy. <laughs> and he looks so intense. He if looks someone so gave weird. you an orange looking like that, yeah. that face, you would look... <laughs> looks at us it's just so it's murderous it's tense that guy's the epitome of like somebody please call the bouncer i need to get out of this situation yeah he's way too intense and lorenzo who is the intense guy with the orange is the poor apprentice of this family and the story goes that uh, lorenzo and isabella fall in love the thuggish brothers who you can see on the left hand side they're both wearing matchy matchy orange tunics because they're so cool they actually unfortunately kill lorenzo they murder him and isabella finds his body and in a perfectly normal way takes lorenzo's head and plants it in a pot of basil I mean, that would definitely be my first thought if I was to find my slain lover. Yeah. (laughs) So that's the story. And um, yeah, you can see here, it's really been given the intense kind of pre-Raphaelite treatment. If we then look at... So the same story was also, just quickly, was taken by William Holman Hunt actually quite a while later i believe that this first painting by millet was done in uh, 1848 to 9 so that's literally right at the beginning of the pre-raphaelites so it's almost you could say it's literally like it is their manifesto like writ large on a painting so one of the things i find really interesting about this is kind of going back to what you were saying before it's like they're kicking against the academy but not that much Mm. and so like we were actually you know when we were talking off air about this and i was like they're all just they're they're all taken from the same source material Mm. they're all doing the same stories over and over again yeah and actually this is part of that we're kicking against the academy but not that much because again the academy was like you've got this fixed set of source material and this is how you're allowed to paint it. (laughs) And and... they've decided to do the exact same thing. Yeah, but just like brighter. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) jazzier (laughs) colours. So in this second painting, uh, which is by Holman Hunt, it was done uh, around 20 years later and he's given it a different treatment. So the story's moved on a bit. She's planted his head in the basil pot by this point she's got a lovely actually got lovely enviable basil bush going on (laughs) isabella and her massive bush (laughs) isabella and her basil bush (laughs) but like i was saying this to you i was like we we got some basil from the supermarket and I could not keep it alive. Well, clearly what we were missing was our lover's head. Well, <laughs> you know, Chris should be worried. Because <laughs> I do love my fresh herbs. <laughs> and if he really loves me, he will do what he's got to do to make sure I, I get the flavours I need in my salads. <laughs> so, um, but you can see here, again, this is also very typically pre-Raphaelite but in a different way so um what Holman Hunt has done is he's 
got this in crazy attention to detail like literally if you zoom in on this painting uh, you can see lorenzo is written on yeah. that on that that nice. tapestry is also just incredible she's definitely she looks quite a bit like it could be jane morris or it, i was thinking that she's got the she's got the jane morris face hasn't she yeah um, um not enough eyebrow though no but the, they've got a very thick neck yeah which is what they all have and lots of long ways yeah. are we gonna touch on the thick necks we later on absolutely are yeah. a, a seminal theme i can't believe it's not in their their four declarations <laughs> to, to produce really thick, thick necks, necks. <laughs> massive jaws <laughs> gingers <laughs> but it's also it is also like breathtaking especially yeah. when you look at it like kind of zoomed in and, mm. and you do see the level of detail that they're putting into these paintings is truly like um, yeah and the colors are to behold. so yeah. like intense and again it's got that freshness because he's not used a huge you can see he's not really used a huge amount of black um, a lot of that actually oh this is the other thing so we're gonna have to skip back to Millet's Isabella for a second, which is the one. This is the tights <laughs> because a lot. Also, at the time, this is how extra they are. If we zoom into the little bench that Isabella is uh, sitting on, what's on the bench? Oh, PRB, pre-Raphaelite oh. Brotherhood. <laughs> so. He would sign his name, but all of the pre-Raphaelites would... And they were a secret society at the time, but they would all put PRB on their canvases. So, yeah, so if you zoom into the leg of the bench, inside the carving of the bench leg, which is just... You cannot see it unless you've gone right, right into it. Mm. They've painted in the carving PRB. So they're all putting their secret little logos yeah. on things of their little club. Yeah. <laughs> just i just think it's so funny that they just a secret society no one knows about it yet and they're just <laughs> they've got their special lists they've got, they've got all sorts of stuff going on another one of their immortals actually is uh hogarth and you can see that in this isabella painting with the tights and the, and the bench that a lot of their paintings are very theatrically posed yep and they took that from, I guess if they are going to kick against a lot of these conventions of composition and layout and facial expressions, they've got to sort of get their own composition style from somewhere. And they all really admired Hogarth and his series of paintings like Marigella Mode, mm -hmm. uh, where you have these kind of, they're called tableau vivant. So like these kind of living tableau of people posing to let you know certain things are happening in a scene and you can see that in that in that uh in Millet's Isabella painting everybody's doing something yeah what was that thing you said to me off air you're like it's like somebody's taken a photo of the worst dinner party you've ever been to <laughs> yeah. if you look at all of their facial expressions yeah. and what they're doing it's literally, it is incredible like I looked at it and I thought god it is it does look like someone's just taken a snapshot one guy's caught drinking his wine. This guy is caught just admiring his wine. <laughs> just giving it a little swill in the glass. This guy's dabbing his mouth. It is, it's great. And it really does capture a moment of drama. And I think you see that in a lot of pre-Raphaelite art that, that it's really dramatic. There's so much going on. 
so um another painting it's another holman hunt one actually that's a bit like that is the awakening conscience which again to me this feels like a like something out of a play mm-hmm. especially because both people are facing forwards mm-hmm. like in a painting you can have anyone doing anything yeah like they could be facing anyway it's true they are that it really does look like they're looking at the audience you're absolutely right yeah and the awakening conscience is one that people talk about a lot because it definitely taps into a lot of those themes that we were discussing so a fallen woman this woman is the implicate this is one that shocked people a lot for the subject matter rather than how it was painted because it it quite like unashamedly shows a scene of a man who is clearly with his mistress mm-hmm. they're just having a fun time at the piano just <laughs> <laughs> clearly just you know that's what the kids are calling at these things <laughs> on the tiktok <laughs> tickling the ivories and <laughs> and but she's got up and we've caught her in a moment where she's she's kind of risen out of the chair and her hands are clasped very dramatically and she's looking out like she's having a moment of conscience and thinking, I'm not sure I want to be this man's kept mistress anymore. Um, and all of the, the things in the room make you think this is... This is a, a very nice house. Like it's, it, they've he's, Holman Hunt knows knows his interiors. <laughs> it, he knows how to lay out a room. So you've got this very nice piano, these um, sort of embroidered drapes. She's got a really nice shawl on, which is incredibly detailed. But the 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 thing that lets you know that something is going on or there's something not right is that there's this crazy looking cat in the corner (laughs) toying with this little bird and um apparently that's holman hunt's symbolism of i well the bird is kind of like you know she's she's in the the kind of the the claws of this man Mm -hmm. but she, she could break free um and she is sort of in a gilded cage like it's yeah. it's a very beautiful room there's a mirror as well uh, in the background so you can see what she's looking at and she's looking out at this garden um and if i was going full bayon dixon i'd be like is it the garden of eden <laughs> is she trying to return <laughs> to a state before sin <laughs> be a microcosm (laughs) of a greater moral quandary so again these artists dealt with subject matter in different ways so it's really interesting to look at those two pictures i actually think uh, awakening conscience that was earlier um so that was the, at the end of the official brotherhood, 1853. So it's interesting the things that people get shocked by. So they were shocked by the way stuff was painted, so yeah. how it looked. But obviously in this in, in the Awakening Conscience, people were shocked by the subject matter. So especially because this was clearly something that was going on. Everyone, like lots and lots of well-to-do men 
kept mistresses. Mm -hmm. Charles Dickens did. And he had a lot to say about the Pre-Raphaelites. He was not a fan at the beginning. Yeah. They wanted to, I guess, shine a light on some of the kind of grubbier parts of Victorian society. Sometimes they did it through the medium of medieval reenactment, <laughs> which was always quite interesting. Sometimes they actually did it in a contemporary way. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to make that clear as well. They didn't... The medieval thing was a very big theme, but certain artists were more interested in realism. And there was actually a bit of a split in the brotherhood between different artists. So... Rossetti and Edward Byrne Jones, who was a sort of second generation, <laughs> if it was like skins, you know, like the first gen, which is like, you know, Tony and everyone, and then Effie's generation comes along, and that's like Edward Byrne Jones and William Morris. They... Which one's Cook? Edward Byrne Jones and Rossetti were very much the kind of medievalist um, and much more escapist, I guess, branch of. The Pre-Raphaelites. And then Holman Hunt and um, I think Millet maybe uh, were more on the were more on the realist side. Also, by the way, I do keep banging on about this zine as though it's a joke. They genuinely did have a zine. <laughs> of course they did. What was it called? What was it called? The Germ. Oh my God. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but then this is this is incredible. So it was called The Germ, Thoughts Towards Nature in Art and Literature. So earnest. Yep. But um, it didn't really get much circulation. I wonder why. <laughs> so they decided to rename it to the more catchy Art and Poetry Being Thoughts Towards Nature Conducted Principally by Artists. Snappy! Mm. <laughs> that rebrand really went well. <laughs> It ran to like four okay. issues. Okay, so these guys may know interior design, but it turns out they don't know marketing. No. <laughs> don't get them in as brand consultants. Oh. So, the tea. Oh my God, where do we even begin with the tea? There's so many stories. So, I think we'll start with one of the most famous ones. So, we should start by talking about one of the most famous... Um, one of the most famous pre-Raphaelite... She is the most famous pre-Raphaelite woman... And that is uh, Lizzie Siddle. Mm -hmm. uh, she was a famous model for a lot of the paintings, particularly for uh, Millet and Rossetti. She was an artist in her own right, and we will talk about that later, because people don't give that enough They definitely kudos. don't give that enough kudos at all. And she was, you know for her time, a successful artist. female artist. Like, Ruskin kept her on a... Like, John Ruskin bought all of her drawings that she'd already mm -hmm. done and then kept her on a retainer to do more. And he didn't do that for Rossetti. Of course, Elizabeth Siddle is now most famous for being Ophelia. I, th much. I think it's fair yeah. to say she's now most famous for, for modelling Ophelia. Yeah. Which, I, you know, is one of my favourite paintings in the world. Um, yeah. I think it's beautiful, but it does madden me that yeah, that's, that's all it. she's known for now. So I've got Ophelia up here and I guess this is actually a good way in for talking about some of the goss because i think ophelia was a big turning point for the pre-raphaelites 1851 so they're still a brotherhood at this point but this was the painting that it really put 
John Everett Millet on the map specifically, but at around this point, Ruskin gave the Pre-Raphaelites his seal of approval and they just started to become a little bit more of a force to be reckoned with. So I think um, it was all sort of thanks to this painting, which again has so many of the Pre-Raphaelite trademarks, intense attention to detail, all of the little individual leaves you can see. Yes. <clears throat> it's a it's incredible i used to like this is just you know a little aside we used to have that hanging above my bath um when i was a kid <laughs> and i just used to like lay in the bath like staring laying in the bath like ophelia <laughs> staring at ophelia but like just the, the the detail is incredible like every leaf every flower mm. shakespearean subject matter so again box ticked for pre-raphaelite things and this picture is of Lizzie Siddle so she famously posed in a bath for Millet while he painted this that had I think they lit candles and lamps under the bath to keep the water warm and she was posing and then one of the times she was posing all of the lamps and candles burned out so he got so this is such a clap oh my god like (laughs) this is such a classic like narcissistic like art boy thing as well (laughs) he just like got so into the work that he didn't notice that he was basically killing the model like (laughs) exactly i think she was so you know so kind of like preoccupied with trying to be the best model she could and and no trouble to to the mm. lads that she didn't say that the water was literally freezing yeah and I you mean, think like you know in victorian london like freezing is freezing yeah and also it was no joke because she got she got pneumonia because of it yeah and again victorian london like it's you know i don't really think antibiotics no antibiotics were not for a while yet oh, yeah yeah as you can see Certain parts of my knowledge of history are incredibly detailed. <laughs> Other parts, not so much. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, most people could not afford doctors. So, like, yeah. Lizzie, Lizzie Siddle, you know, was... Her family I mean, were very... They weren't poor, poor, but they were definitely not... They were, they were very much um, working class to maybe lower middle class at yeah. best. They didn't have loads of money. So they had a hat shop, didn't they? Did they have a hat shop? She worked in a hat shop. I don't know if it was... Yeah. I mean, at the time as well, like, being an artist model was not considered a particularly respectable job. And yet, her family decided to... That it was... That it was okay for her to do that because um, she was actually... She would earn a lot of money and she was already, apparently, had quite a delicate sort of constitution, Mm -hmm. quite prone to being ill. So they decided that actually being an artist model would get it it would mean she wouldn't have she wouldn't be exhausted working say in a shop yeah um and could still earn good money so and she was and but actually oh again here's another thing of like bloody rewriting history so the famous story of how lizzie siddle got discovered is she was seen in the hat shop and you know Rossetti thought she was a stunner, which apparently is a term he coined. <laughs> so when we say someone's a stunner, you can thank Dante Gabriel Rossetti. But his idea of a stunner <laughs> and most people's idea of a stunner are quite different. Quite different, yeah. His aesthetic was very specific. <laughs> Super specific. <laughs> like to the point 
point of it being creepy. <laughs> you, know, you know when guys date the same girl over and Literally, over again, and that is like, yeah, and it's like quite creepy. That is Rosetti. He He's has like, got a type. Rosetti has got a type. Thick neck. <laughs> Big, Big jaw. <laughs> Heavy brow. <laughs> I actually forgot Rosetti's type. <laughs> Rosetti's type: thick neck, big chin, heavy brow. But is he your type? <laughs> You've seen the pictures. <laughs> he was big into redheads. Very tall as well. This is another thing that really did kick against the establishment. Women were seen as, or the ideal women were seen as, quite petite blonde you know quite modest not childlike quite childlike not really taking up too much room the angel of the house you know a wife and mother that Mm. was that was the victorian ideal (laughs) rosetti comes along and it's like i'm into tall birds (laughs) with big necks saying this over and over again but the more you look at pre-raphaelite paintings the more you see that like especially in rosetti's paintings they all have necks like rugby players (laughs) really fleshy women (laughs) these and um quite masculine featured faces yeah and and this is a really a really interesting part of their aesthetic as well is that the women were quite strong the focus of their paintings particularly if you look at a lot of Rossetti's paintings like there's oh god he gives them all fucking Italian bloody names (laughs) that I'm gonna get wrong but there's one called Bocca Bocciata I think Bocca Bocciata fucking huge neck (laughs) the neck on this one (laughs) literally her neck and her head are the same width I'm telling you, I'm telling you, look, big chin, heavy brow, big neck, huge lips. I'm Rosetti's type. I'm just 300 years too late or whatever. (laughs) I think you might have dodged a bullet, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) This is the thing, they, and especially in Rosetti's paintings, they take up space. Like, apart from anything else, they literally fill the canvas. Like, they are front and centre. I mean... Bocca Bacciata is, um, apparently means kissed mouth. Holman, literally William Holman Hunt compared this painting to pornography. He was like, it's too much. I was like, please. She's wearing clothes. Her hair is down. Um, But like, this is a big thing. Women with red hair were very sexualised. And you often saw paintings of Mary Magdalene. She'd often have red hair to say like, that's it. That's a sexy lady. <laughs> Red hair. <laughs> Apparently, oh my God, I was looking up the history. This is what happens. Oh God, I was researching one thing and you go down a rabbit hole. I was researching red, the history of red hair because I was trying to find out the connotations. Back in like the 1200s, uh, a, a, like a, a ruler said that uh, prostitutes should dye their hair red so they'd be easier to spot. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So this link between sexuality and red hair goes way back. Yeah. Also, red hair has other connotations. So um, in the... There's this seminal 
uh, book about witchcraft. It's called the Malleus Maleficarum. <clears throat> it was um, fourteen eighty seven. It was yeah. It was it was very early, but this was this like <laughs> this like encyclopedia of witchcraft and on everything you needed to know about a witch, what witches look like, what they get up to, <laughs> and apparently witches often have red hair of course they do so there was all this stuff going on for i guess for why rossetti was massively into redheads they were very sexy they had this kind of witchy you know sort of uh devil woman vibe they were dangerous they were they were they were temptresses so already he would be Getting a lot of Victorians flustered yeah. by, <laughs> by putting big, big girthy redheads in his paintings. <laughs> They're basically the opposite of tiny little petite blondes. But then, on top of that, he's always th- this is a big pre-Raphaelite trope: is women with very full, sensuous mouths and long, flowing hair. The interesting thing is that a lot of the time. Pre-Raphaelites really didn't paint that many nudes, which is interesting because actually, if you think about the male gaze and these sexy women, they're often clothed. They're heavily clothed as well. They're not just clothed, they're like heavily clothed. Loads of robes yeah, and shit. Yeah, shawls and... Mm. The focus is really on like the hair and the mouth and the face. And um, so the the flowing hair... I mean, the, the the thing that everyone always says is like, you know, loose hair, loose morals. Mm-hmm. People, when they referred to putting their hair up, they would talk about dressing their hair. So if your hair was down, in a way, your hair was undressed. Like, Naked. it was... Naked hair. Only your husband saw you with your hair down. Right. Like that sexy picture of Queen Victoria <laughs> yeah. that she got painted for Albert, where she's got one shoulder out and her hair's all like, <laughs> ooh, it's all flowy. <laughs> No one else sees me like this. Victorian nudes. Victorian nudes. Send hair. (laughs) (laughs) But really, well, the long and short of it is, this was just Rossetti's type. (laughs) This was just massively Rossetti's type. (laughs) So... Rossetti's incredibly specific kinks. (laughs) That ended up literally just becoming the template for... (laughs) like Victorian art moving forward Um, (laughs) and I mean if we're talking about sexy redheads um, Lady Lilith is is the bit like she is literally sat combing these long tresses Mm -hmm. and again really like filling up the canvas like she you're kind of confronted with her and all of her hair Again, bloody huge neck. Fucking huge neck. Huge neck, huge shoulders, big old chin. I think that actually, I think Rossetti wanted to be. I think he wanted to be a bit dominated. I think he wanted a woman <laughs> he who just wanted to be smacked, slapped around a bit. Around. <laughs> he just wanted a big box of lass <laughs> yeah. to, to, to tell him to just to, to call him out on his shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but she's yeah, she's she's definitely she's not a waif, and uh, she's very curvy, and she's looking at herself in the mirror while she combs all of this hair, this long ginger hair. 
we were saying but we were, we were talking about this off air because i was trying to find out who lilith is uh she was in judaic literature was the first wife of adam so pre-eve and according to wikipedia she is associated with the seduction of men and the murder of children <laughs> rosetti's like oh fucking hell <laughs> my type <laughs> would like to meet <laughs> a seducer of men and murderer of children seducers of men and murder of children in your area <laughs> keep to me <laughs> good sense of humour <laughs> just want to meet my partner in crime <laughs> what did you say Lilith meant like screechy owl or something <laughs> Lilith in like the Hebrew or something translates to screeching owl. So what was it? A night hag, screeching owl, and there was a couple of other ones. Screeching owl. It's incredible. I want to be called night hag and screeching owl. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So moving on from screechy owl, night hag, Lilith. Um, yeah, I want to go back to, (laughs) we went on a real tangent, but I want to go back to Lizzie Siddle, because I want to talk about the tea. There is so much tea with the pre-Raphaelites. Literally, everybody is fucking each other, and just, yeah, I think we need to go all the way back to Lizzie Siddle, and how she was discovered, because... This is typical rewriting of the history books. Um, so the, the story, the, the, the popular story goes that she was discovered by uh, one of the members of the Pre-Raphaelites called Walter Deverell. So he was he's not a particularly well-known one. He died very young, so I think he didn't really have time to do mm-hmm. his best work. Um, the story goes he, she, he spotted her in a hat shop. Now... She did work in a hat shop, but actually, having done some digging, she was she didn't come to art having joined the Pre-Raphaelites. She was already doing drawings and stuff before she became a model for the Pre-Raphaelites. She 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 already wanted to be an artist in her own right. way, and she actually was approaching, I believe, Deverell's uh, dad. I think because he collected art. And um, it was through, it was actually through getting in touch with him that she met Walter Deverell, and through him she met the Pre-Raphaelites. So that's really, yeah. I mean, like that's really interesting. It's it's right back to what we were saying at the beginning of this, like just like women having their agency completely erased in yeah. art history she and she made her own success she made yeah she made and her own success but she's now been written as the passive muse yeah um completely and then it's become like a side thing of like oh actually she uh, she she kind of got into drawing after she met Rossetti she didn't she was always drawing yeah. but like once she became part of an artistic community her work improved like anybody's would yes so um so yeah, I wanted to set the record straight on that before we got <laughs> onto the tea because, uh, yeah, Lizzie was not this passive muse. A lot of the women you'll find in this story are not passive muses <laughs> no. at all. They definitely can hold their own. So yes, so 
everybody's fucking each other. <laughs> we need to get back onto that. So Lizzie joins the Prue Aphrodites. She's a model for Millet. She becomes a model for Rossetti. Rossetti is quite weird. <laughs> and they get together, um, but because he's just such a fuckboy. This is going to come up time yeah. and again. Rosetti is a fuckboy, like, Extraordinary. <laughs> oh my God. Like, so he's like, oh, um, Lizzie can only be my model now. Which she agrees to. <laughs> All the way through, we were watching Desperate Romantics. We were like, baby girl, don't do it. Don't no. do it. Don't believe his promises. He lives in a conservatory and you think that's after you and cool now, but like, <laughs> wait until well, well, wait until you get pneumonia. How yeah, cool is it gonna be then? Exactly. So <laughs> and yeah, Rossetti was not particularly faithful. He had other models. They had quite a fractious relationship. They had a very, very long engagement. To the point where fucking, I mean, we'll talk about him later, but you'll understand why this is so ridiculous later. Ruskin was telling him to put a ring on it. Yeah. And this is fucking, this is John, like John Ruskin. Who, <laughs> John who, Ruskin, who should not be given anybody marriage advice. Yeah. <laughs> and trust me, you will understand why in a minute. But like, yeah, I mean, that whole, that relationship is crazy. I mean, I, and also, like, he had no intention, I believe, really, of marrying Lizzie Siddle. He was no. quite happy to, um, you know, by Victorian standards, ruin her reputation and make it so she, you know, couldn't survive alone in the world. But he only married Lizzie Siddle, I think, out of guilt after mm. she got very ill. And... And, I mean, she was basically... She was really sick. Like, she disappeared for a couple of years. She actually took herself away just to, to, like, live quietly in another bit of the country. And just to recuperate, because her health was so bad. she some absolute, like, like Hastings or something? (laughs) She was some middle-of-nowhere place. (laughs) I was like, you're just going to make... If you're already depressed, you're making yourself look (laughs) so much worse. (laughs) But from Hampstead to Hastings, the Lizzie Siddle story. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> but then, yeah, she came back, and um, Rossetti decided to marry her. She was so ill that she had to sort of be basically carried up the aisle. Mm. But amazingly, she lived for a few years after, enough time for her to get pregnant and lose the baby. I think twice, maybe. And um, their relationship was very fractured towards the end. She was also, by this point, really addicted to laudanum very badly, which is an opioid, for anyone who doesn't know. Do um, you know why she got hooked on laudanum? Do you know what the kind of... What the spark was? Or was it just that they were knocking it out to every woman in those days? I think they were. I think it's used as a painkiller a lot. So... Thomas de Quincey, who's like a very famous opium addict um, from like the early 1800s, he was prescribed it for toothache, I think, and mm. then he literally just became a drug addict because it was just so 
so addictive. I mean, we sort of like talk about this in horror and kind of laugh about it, but it's really not dissimilar to what's happened with like Xanax. Yeah. So, but it's still happening today. The drugs mm. just have different names. Yeah. Um, and it's just so, I mean, and also it is, it is opium, which, I mean, it's, it's basically, is that the same as like morphine and stuff? Yeah, yeah. So imagine just like, basically like, un- raw, unprocessed, like morphine that yeah. you can just get prescribed over the counter. <laughs> for, for your toothache. For your toothache or whatever. <laughs> so no wonder everyone was on it and just like, um, but she was very, very addicted to it. And she did die of a laudanum overdose. Uh, it's unknown whether it was accidental or intentional. Some stories say she had a note pinned to her breast when she was found. Other people say it, it was just sort of could could have been like death by misadventure. She might have just taken too much. Mm-hmm. So the story there, I just I'm gonna bring in AC Swinburne. <laughs> people need to know. Um, so the night that she died. Um, Rossetti found her, but before then, he was having dinner with a poet, A.C. Swinburne, who was a good friend of Lizzie and Rossetti. Actually, I think they might have all gone to dinner together. Anyway, um, Rossetti went off to teach at the uh, working men's club where he gave art lectures, and then when he came home, he found Lizzie and she was dead. But A.C. Swinburne, who they had dinner with... (laughs) I looked him up because I, I do know of him. He's a poet. I just wanted to find out a bit more about him. And the story I found was that... I think this was on his Wikipedia page or something. As well. I was like, this is how you want to be remembered for the rest of time. Uh, apparently, he, he would famously go around telling people this story that he once had sex with and then ate a monkey. <laughs> Lights were a batshit bunch. <laughs> Just like, and then, and then, <laughs> Oscar Wilde said of AC Swinburne, "Oh, he's a braggart, and he shows off about homosexuality and bestiality." But basically, I think he's all talk and no trousers. <laughs> and if Oscar Wilde, he was like, I feel, you know, the Victorian eras most notable show-off is saying that you are a show-off. I feel like it's quite, you know... If Oscar Wilde thinks you're a bit much, (laughs) something's going on He's like, oh, I can only take him in small doses. (laughs) Oscar Wilde's like, don't want to get stuck in a lift with that guy. (laughs) Don't let him tell you the monkey story. (laughs) I'm just like, also... If you go on holiday, don't let AC Swinburne take care of your pets. I think that's the moral of this story. Also, like, why? Like, what, what, why? It, it, like, like, I mean, it, it's clearly not true. He it's did. Not he true. didn't fucking eat a monkey. It's... I was gonna say, like, we was we were talking about this when I first found this story. This has been like this has come up multiple times since I found this out. Like. If you did it, why would you tell someone? <laughs> if you haven't done it, why would you show off about that? <laughs> what? <laughs> also, I never found out the size of the monkey. Like, <laughs> oh my god, what if it was just one of the tiny little cute ones? <laughs> no. 
monkey species very well, but you know what a little monkey. Such a tiny monkey. like a chimp or one of these tiny little monkeys but like as well like if it's a one of the larger primates right then it would have to be you know that brings in the whole concept of like it would have had to have been consensual because like a chimp would fuck you up (laughs) yeah (laughs) you want to fight a chimp (laughs) oh clearly never happened never happened clearly never happened I mean, A.C. Swinburne is an interesting character. Like, I, I'm not going to go into him too much because it, it's he's very tangential to the pre-Raphaelites. But um, he was like, he was quite an, just a, an openly gay man in Victorian times. But which is cool. It's in cool and, and amazing that he that he managed that without any. I mean, I think he was such a wild character anyway that people were just like, "Oh, he does his own thing." But he. <laughs> <laughs> Just his own drama. But um, but yeah, I looked him up. He was into kink. He was yeah. into like sadomasochism. He wrote poetry about all of this stuff. He really did write poetry about a lot of taboo subjects. So, um, yeah, he was friends with the pre-Raphaelites, but he was he was I believe he's he's part of a group known as like the Decadents or something. Can yeah, you imagine? Of yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I would say look him up. Some of his poetry is quite saucy and it's quite fun for like Victorian times stuff. It's it's better than all of the sort of, you know, I, I saw some snowdrops and I had a cry <laughs> kind of Victorian fair that you normally get. Um. <laughs> Honestly, three years spent doing an English degree. I feel like my tutors would just, just dis. They'd be like, "What? I'm an expert in my field. I taught you for ages, and the best you could say is I saw some snowdrops and had a cry." (laughs) Well, you deserve a bit, though. You deserved your place on this course. Um, It is, though. I mean, oh god, it's so fucking. Some Victorian stuff is so twee. Anyway. Uh, so, but then Lizzie died and then the worst is yet to come because we're going to get onto prime fuckboy nonsense territory. So Rossetti wrote a lot of poetry, um, about Lizzie. She was his muse. He wrote his, some of his best poems about her, he felt. And he buried his manuscript with her. He was like, these were my poems to you and, you know... I bury you, I bury all of this, all of my love for you goes in, goes into the coffin. Now, that was all well and good. But then about seven years later, people were like, you know what? Those poems are really good. What happened to those? And then Rossetti's like, oh, they were quite good, weren't they? <laughs> oh, shit. So then Rossetti decides to have his wife exhumed. Seven years later. Later. Yeah. 
He wasn't there, by the way, either. He got, like, a, some lawyer friend of his to oversee the whole thing. Which I just think is kind of like, if you're going to exhume your dead wife, at least turn up. It's insult to injury, isn't it? Yeah. And he treated her so badly during her life, like... And then just... And also, it's this whole nonsense thing of, like, you know... He kind of... I'd say she was his muse, and I do feel like he... He used her. He like, used her, yeah. This long engagement, just cheating on her. This this whole that I think He's just an absolute top fuckboy. Like he, yeah. he is he is he is like the daddy of fuckboys. Like yeah. he's he the kept classic her hanging for years. He kept her hanging for and he's also the classic like he he only wants her when he can't have, have her. her. Like, like she is everything in death. She is yeah. yeah. Like, like he oh, painted until, that beautiful yeah Beata Beatrix, Literally. which is her with the red dove, and she's like looking also. You like, only want me when I'm not there. Better call Becky with the good hair. That <laughs> may as well have been written about Rosetti. Yeah. Obsessed with hair. <laughs> Lizzie had great hair. Yeah. And he did only want her when she wasn't there. Specifically when she was dead and seven years in the grave. I mean, like, that is just, you know... Yeah. Exhuming your dead wife um, in order to get some poetry back because you think it might have some sort of commercial value is just... And apparently it was... I was reading up, it was just... It was just... They were literally, like, gagging. They they dug her up, not in a drag queen way either, in in an actual she's been decomposing for seven years way. And, like, and they got the manuscript... Oh, can you imagine the manuscript? Oh, was, God. Uh, and then, like, he did publish them as well. Uh, some commercials. I don't. I don't think it. It, it wasn't the. It wasn't the bestseller he thought it was going to be. So was that worth it? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah, and just, just, and by this point, he'd basically moved on to William Morris's wife, Jane Morris. So he was kind of. He was sort of in Just love with her. Out there saying, ruining William Morris's life. Cucking William <laughs> Morris. Cucking William Morris. Literally in just the, like, he, he, so he was sad. He was depressed. He was an, by this point, I believe he was an alcoholic after not, not drinking for many years. And he then, also had monkeys. He had, he had all kinds of pets, didn't he? He had <laughs> loads of pets. But he was sad. So William Morris was like, oh, don't worry. You can move in with me for a bit if you're sad. So he did. And then sleeps with William Morris's wife. But also, it's actually worse than that. So yeah. didn't he like bully? Not bully, but didn't he basically heavily suggest that William Morris marry Jane in the beginning? Yes. Because he always had a thing for Jane Morris, but he that was damn Lizzie Siddle was getting in the way, um, and he didn't think it would be looked upon kindly. But in order to keep Jane Morris in the circle he basically pushed Jane and William together mm. William did fall in love with Jane Morris and then yeah. once Lizzie had died he just sort of gate crashed William Morris's life and yeah. cucked him yeah. cucked him really hard <laughs> yes <laughs> cucked him literally all the way to Iceland didn't he because <laughs> William Morris had got so upset by this point and literally couldn't be around him like Nord ancient Norse literature or something and just fucked off because he was so upset um but also I think like a little shout I don't want to go too deeply into William Morris because like that is an episode to it to itself yeah but I think it should be said that 
as as heartbroken and as upset as William Morris is, he had this real thing that Jane was not his property mm. and that she was, you know, Jane, Jane was not his property. He did not own her. Her heart was her own and it was hers to give to who she wanted. And so yeah. he did not stand in the way of her and Rosetti. That's true. And they sort of did, they had this like, yeah, like you say, they had a prior sort of thing going on because I think Rosetti introduced when she was Jane Burden, as in before she married William Morris, she he introduced her to the group because she, she was another stunner of his. Oh. oh god the cat started here we go <laughs> if you're wondering what all the background noise is <laughs> the, ca- the cats the cats getting involved the, yeah the, cat, the cat's been really quiet she's been asleep for the whole thing but she's like i'm awake now <laughs> kate, kate crushing our arrangement <laughs> always trying to come between us um but, but um uh yes so but he introduced and then i think yeah he did push william and jane together and then also i think jane made a advantageous match because william morris was he did come from a wealthy family and i she was working class yeah and uh and for her it was a really good match and um she did have to have like training, didn't she, to become a lady? Again, they keep my fair ladying these women. Like Honestly. it's so problematic. They're like, yeah. oh, we're just like we've got this rule thing about like working class authenticity, and like we need these working class women, but also they need to learn how to talk properly. Yeah. <laughs> um. But after apparently, I mean, Jane Morris became really well known for like being a wonderful hostess, hosting lots of parties having um you know building this kind of uh community of artists mm-hmm. in in the Mor- in the big morris houses i think it was the red house the maybe red house, yeah. and um also apparently she doesn't get a lot like, this is another thing of muses not getting credit thing um she was again an artist in her own right more involved in kind of craft so she um, intri- she really brought back needlework as a craft mm-hmm. and uh, if you go to William Morris's houses she does a-, a lot of the interior decoration of those houses was kind of led by her she painted loads of the furniture in those houses um, so again in terms of the arts and crafts movement Jane Morris was like a big force to be reckoned with and she again I think she didn't really get enough recognition because of William Morris probably being the big hitter um in the arts and crafts movement yeah so there's that's that's one love how many people were involved in that like a love (laughs) pentagon or something (laughs) um and then that that's that's just that's just one branch of the goss I mean then you've got so John Ruskin this is where we get into problematic john ruskin so john ruskin was married to uh euphemia gray euphemia is that her full name aka effie gray euphemia that is a baller name (laughs) that is a baller my next cat euphemia (laughs) so yes so john ruskin and effie gray 
were married. But what became clear a few years into the relationship is that John Ruskin had no intention of consummating this relationship. We don't really know why. There's not any from 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 hours I spent looking into John Ruskin and his weird sexual interests and my Google history <laughs> is now a bit weird. There was really no, it's never really been clear why they didn't consummate the marriage when they were on honeymoon and he was writing the I think it's the Stones of Venice when he was writing that he was just letting her go out to balls and parties on her own which was not really allowed at the time like an, an unaccompanied married woman was a bit a bit suspect and he sort of pushed her in the way he encouraged friendships that she had with with men so she had this like soldier friend that she met because she was lonely and she was on her own in italy while he was writing his book and he encouraged the friendship and again i think this is another men really not not sort of basically not not doing like not not being responsible for their own feelings and she resisted it and she actually wrote to her brother and her dad about it and they suspected that he was trying to implicate her in in a in another relationship so that if he wanted an out he could claim adultery Mm -hmm. which is just shit it's so robert because that would absolutely i mean you have to understand that we're talking about victorian england like that would trash a woman she would she would you know she yeah she'd be destitute she'd Mm. be absolutely ruined yeah i think so didn't she describe the the few times he saw her naked or something because disgust at her person he was disgusted with her person which yeah we don't know oh, what that means but there's two big theories isn't there yeah so one theory is that she had pubes and he was just <laughs> horrified by the bush but <laughs> <laughs> probably because he'd never we'd never seen a naked woman before and trust me he probably really hadn't seen a naked woman before given his upbringing and the only naked women he'd seen were in art and they were obviously completely bald so there's that theory there's also the theory that she might have been on her period on their wedding night and that maybe he was scared of her menstrual blood which is again just weird Mm. so you also have to understand that Ruskin had quite a very weird sort of quite like a hot housed sheltered upbringing like he traveled with his mum everywhere his mum was really heavily involved in his life even when he was uh, an adult like he when he went to oxford she came with him oh my god <laughs> in freshers week <laughs> rolling with his mum <laughs> um yeah he brought his mum with him to oxford she was always kind of heavily involved in the sort of in the marriage as well so yeah she was always this presence so he was never really even in his marriage to effie he was just he just wasn't i think there were just parts of him that weren't very adult and responsible because he'd just been so like kind of mollycoddled his whole life um i think because his parents saw how like gifted and brilliant he was as a child and then i think they just kind of 
partly um I think partly smothered him because of that but also apparently his like um uh, I think his his family were quite religious as well yeah. there's there's all sorts of things that go into why Roskin ended up a bit fucked up but um anyway so uh their marriage was not consummated and around this time surprise surprise uh Millet comes into the picture because Ruskin wants him to paint a picture and he just lets Millet and Effie just hang out for hours at a time together. Does this sound familiar? Yes, it does. It sounds a little bit like when they were on honeymoon. And also, as we sort of discussed earlier, it was not seen as like a proper thing to have artists around your wife and no. especially not to ask for, for women to model. That's yeah. not seen as a proper thing. And you know so that in itself was a bit of a par. Well, yeah. I mean, it was a bit of a it was a bit of a par. It's a yeah. bit of a like, yeah, he's he's insinuating something about his own wife there. Perhaps. Yeah. Effie and Millet basically struck up a close friendship and she revealed to him that the marriage wasn't consummated. And they did end up falling in love with each other and they wanted to elope because Effie was trapped in this loveless marriage with John Ruskin. Um. So the only way out they saw, because... You know, they. It was it was difficult to get a divorce in those days. It was usually on the grounds of like neglect, abandonment, or adultery, and she couldn't like adultery would ruin her reputation. So they didn't actually do anything while she was still married to Ruskin. What they decided to do was to an uh, apply to annul the marriage on the grounds of non consummation, which puts Ruskin in hot water basically it, it obviously put a huge strain on Ruskin and Millet's relationship Ruskin was like a big patron of Millet hugely supported him backed his career commissioned loads of paintings off him Ruskin's word was you know gold in art circles mm-hmm. so having his backing was a, was a big deal so obviously knowing that that they were going to lose that relationship was um was a big deal for Millet commercially he was going to lose one of his most success like biggest patrons basically but then (laughs) Ruskin was worried because it obviously called his reputation into question as well and it ends up I read about this thing where um he tried to defend himself by being like there's nothing wrong with my penis it works totally normally I I wank all the time. <laughs> Literally. What a defence. What a defence. Con- constantly wanking me. Yeah. So, nothing wrong with my penis, guys. But got nothing to be ashamed of over here. Which is very strange. Anyway, in order for this to go through, Effie had to actually undergo a virginity test. Which is just humiliating. It's, and it's nonsense. It's complete and utter nonsense. Yeah. Like, as, it, you as cannot determine virginity that way. It's, yeah. The test was approved and she got her annulment and then her and Millet got married and went on to have nine kids. Well. They were busy. They, they definitely consummated that relationship. Oh, yeah. But so much, like, just so, so many relationships crisscrossing so actually another thing we should address is we, we should talk about john ruskin and uh the sort of <laughs> u tree illusions that we made earlier because yeah there there are 
suggestions that John Ruskin may have been a pedo. Yeah. Uh, basically, he ha- he seemed to have an un- an unusual interest in young girls that um, that obviously, based on the evidence we have, you can't concrete. And also, you don't really we can't hear- concretely say and that he was. You don't really hear if there were victims. You don't really hear from them. Yeah. So you, there's no testimony, or there's 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 if yeah if if there were any girls you don't really hear from them so you can't concretely say one way or another if he was but like i was saying to you earlier like literally one of his biographers is like oh yeah he's a pedo yeah like one of his biographers confidently says he's a pedophile bits of evidence all put together non-consummation of his marriage to effie um an unusual interest in um in young girls like so his second relationship the one after Effie was with a girl called Rose Latouche who he met her when she was about nine and he was her art tutor and he was like oh she's very gifted and like you know um it seems like a great great propensity for art and I'm gonna teach her and then when she was about 15 14 15 proposed to her and he's uh, like uh, um like four in his 40s or 50s by this point yeah it's not right and then she puts him off and says oh um yes i'll uh, i'll become engaged to you when i'm 21 and it's legal for me to marry um and then puts him off again and she actually dies very young um she dies when she's 30. I bet she wasn't betting he would survive until she was 21 and she got to her 21st birthday she's like oh Shit. fuck <laughs> she's God, got to find another reason at the door. he's like banging at the door she's like wow he didn't miss a beat yeah. <laughs> can't wait to get married to this man to have no sex for 20 years <laughs> but yeah so she died very young people think it could, could again because these conditions weren't really well known at the time probably anorexia we think so again she was quite vulnerable so she was they think anorexia she also had like religious mania as well so she was super super religious but also didn't really eat she was quite she had quite an extreme personality and Mm. was like and from a young age was clearly quite vulnerable but he was like obsessed with her and when she died he literally fell apart but Oh, this is just weird. I found some like weird wrote some weird letters to Kate Greenaway, the illustrator, saying that um if she if she oh, it was just gross. Like suggesting that she she it would it would be better for her in terms of her art if she were to paint the kids like naked and the oh. like and if she does that he he she should send him the pictures too. Oh. So there's so many things where yeah. and loads of his but I mean it does sound like he was grooming that girl as well, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, like... and it's like obviously <sighs> people are going so his biographers are going off the information they have. One of his biographers very confidently says, Yes, I believe he is a paedophile, was a paedophile. And some lots of others say uh, like we can't his his behavior was unconventional but you know we can't really judge because we don't know the full story is is the two the two sides you get and then there are there's a whole third group of people saying john ruskin was a great 
uh, art critic and um, he's been maligned by all of these rumours about his sex life. Yeah. And that we can't let that get in the way of a, a great intellect and everything. Um, and it's true he had a huge, huge impact on on Victorian art and um, and specifically on the pre-Raphaelites, but on Victorian art in general. But yeah, clearly also had a very, very questionable personal life. I mean, at, yeah, at the very least, he had uh, some unhealthy attitudes towards sex. And towards women. And towards women. And yeah. that, yeah, that uh, that's the most charitable reading of... Of his of his life yeah <laughs> yeah and he also was like a, he was like he worked at a girls school or something as well it's all a bit sort of like i say it's very you know you treaty so yeah to put it mildly yeah um so it's just a bit odd which we could we couldn't kind of like i guess we couldn't do an episode on the pre-raphaelites without talking about that elephant in the room yeah but, but so when i say john ruskin was telling rossetti to marry lizzie siddle yeah. i'm like <laughs> You're taking advice from this guy? Yeah. From, like, really? Yeah. When, literally, when John Ruskin is like, you're taking the piss a bit now, mate. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I don't really think you're treating this woman correctly. You know, you you're sort know of... You know you're in trouble. Leaving her, leaving her hanging, you know, just... <laughs> <laughs> if, if, the, if the no sex for five years man is telling you that... <laughs> If the I'm literally trying to push you into an affair so I could ruin your reputation, man, is saying that. Hmm. Then you know you've got some problems. Those are just some of the bits of goss. I mean, so many, yeah, so many guys trying to improve women. So many, so many, like, so many people just having relationships with each other left, right and centre lots of lots of artists having affairs with models i think that might be one of the reasons why the pre-raphaelites like it, it was it did make an entertaining drama series it did desperate romantics i very much suggest you all watch it there it, was goss it's had. ludicrous but it's great yeah <laughs> it's so it's so nonsensical i kind of i love also how we both said i think this is you know you had your theory about buffy of like when i was younger i was into angel but now i'm a fully grown woman i'm into giles yeah. <laughs> and i think that's a sign i've matured i do feel like you know we both said when we watched desperate romantics when we were younger we were both into rossetti but now we're both weirdly into home <laughs> the kind of strange like <laughs> the hashish smoking like fez wearing kind of guy who's like gets all his anger out in boxing and he's like and he's, he's like massively into like he's like just really conflicted between wanting just wanting to shag and and also, Jesus Jesus yeah it's just more of a complex character. <laughs> Layers. <laughs> um, so yeah, definitely if you want if you want somewhere to start, then then yeah, watch Desperate Romantics. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please like, subscribe and leave a review as it makes a huge difference. And if you want to follow us, you can find us on Facebook at Is It Art Though, spelt T-H-O. Instagram, is it underscore art though? And Twitter, is it art though one? See you next time.